What a privilege it is to be able to come to you whenever, whenever we need and to be able to call you friend. Lord, we know that we all have gaps. We all have missing places, maybe missing friends or spouses or children. Lord, we ask you to fill those gaps in today and just be the, the friend that each one of us needs in, in the way that we need it. And we thank you for your spirit among us. We pray now that you will bless our time together and Prepare our hearts to hear from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I just want to say that young people, you're dismissed for Sunday school. So up through fifth grade, you're uh, dismissed. I want to bring your attention to a couple of announcements. First of all, if you're here as a guest and this is your very first time, or even if you have been here for a while, on the, uh, on the bulletin, there is an extra flap. And if you have a prayer request, you have a concern, uh, as one of our regular members, uh, our attenders, that would be great. You just fill that out. And if you are first-time visitor, then we just appreciate you'd fill that out and put it in the offering plate as it uh, comes down uh, later. Not the plate, I'm sorry, the little bag, okay? We have offering bags, so you'll get the offering bag a little bit later. We're just glad that you're here, grateful for your chance, uh, chance to have you worship with us this morning. A couple of announcements I want to call your attention to. This Wednesday is the last of our Discovering Your Place in God's Family, and so we just encourage you to join us for that, and we'll start at 6.30, go go to 8 o'clock, and then two weeks, or a week from this coming Wednesday on the 24th is our all-church prayer night. So we'd really want to encourage you to come out and join us for our all-church prayer night. We'd sure appreciate if you did that, and we're looking forward to spending some time as the Lord leads, just laying before Him some requests as we just got done singing. Uh, take it to the Lord in prayer. So I invite you to pray with me as I prepare, as we prepare our hearts to hear from God's Word. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the privilege of prayer, and yet I know that in my own life, I feel so woefully inadequate and so woefully uh, deficient in what it means to really pray, and I ask that you would continue to work in our hearts for your glory. Use these things that you teach us from your text to draw us to yourself and to encourage us and propel us further in our walk with you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, Paul says to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, for the life that now is and the life that is to come. And so this morning, we're going to launch into a new series on summer workouts for spiritual strengthening, for spiritual deepening, for spiritual growth, okay, for spiritual training. And we closed the book of Hebrews last week, and as we closed the book of Hebrews, it was the writer of Hebrews saying that it is Jesus who is, is, is working in us, and now we're going to look at how we can work with him 
to accomplish our growth and maturity in Christ. I'm just fascinated by stories of, of people who have taught themselves things. At the age of 12, William Carey, who is a renowned missionary to India, taught himself Latin. Later, he learned and taught himself Greek and Hebrew and French and Dutch. I find that absolutely fascinating. I was introduced to a gentleman one time who sat down at a piano and played masterfully. He had never had a lesson. Never had a lesson. My father learned to swim on his own when he was standing one day by the farm pond and somebody pushed him in. Now, we don't learn everything. We can learn some things on our own. But we don't learn everything on our own. And, and, and as a matter of fact, it's oftentimes better if we don't learn it on our own. If we learn at the hands of a master, it seems to go better. Because there are just some things you can't learn. And so, er, almost everything that you do learn, that we do learn, is better if taught by a master. I'm kind of interested, you know, a lot of people have these, they have life coaches or they have, you know... Uh, uh, physical coaches, physical fitness coaches, and we have the best spiritual coach we could ever hope for in the Lord Jesus Christ, our master teacher. And one of the most important things that we can learn and need to learn in order to deepen our walk with God, in order to grow closer to Him and to live for Him, is how to pray. And so this morning we're going to look at a passage where our master teacher takes us to school. Actually, Andrew Murray wrote a book with Jesus in the school of prayer. But this is, if you will, just, I used the, picked up from the text, the very phrase, the question that was, or the statement that was given, Lord, teach us to pray. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles or in on your device, or the text is actually printed in the bulletin, or you can look in the front of you, underneath the seat in front of you, there is a Bible, and the page number is printed in the bulletin for you there. I'm going to read through the text, Luke chapter 11. A familiar passage to many, but probably more familiar is the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 6. But I'm going to read this, verses 1 through 13, and it came about that while he was praying, and this is Jesus, in a certain place, after he had finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples how to pray. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation." And he said to them, suppose one of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he will answer, shall answer and say, don't bother me. The door is shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. And I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And I say to you, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks, receive, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Our master teacher, Jesus, at least in my breakdown of the text, teaches us four lessons through his exhortation and through his example. There are four lessons Each inspire a separate but significant approach to prayer that's necessary or helpful in our spiritual maturity and help us grow spiritually. So we're just going to march through the text and look at them. And the first one is that Jesus' priority of prayer teaches us to pray regularly. You look at the text, it just says basically in verse 1, and it came about that while he was praying, but what's interesting about the gospel of Luke is that this is not an isolated incident because all through the gospel of Luke we find Jesus praying in Luke chapter 3 verse 12 Jesus is praying or 21 in Luke chapter 6 verse 12 Luke chapter 9 verse 18 and verse 28 Luke chapter 11 verse 1 and chapter 22 verse 39 and then The one that I want you to look at, uh, we're going to put it up on the screen, is Luke chapter 5, verse 16, which says, But he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. So Jesus wasn't just about prayer once in a while. He was continually, regularly. So his regular practice, his priority, made it a regular practice. There are some people who walk down the trail near where we live Every day, at the same time, they walk down the trail. My neighbor, in fact, almost every day, like clockwork, takes a little loop around the trail. Regularly. It's a priority for them. What we do regularly is a priority. If I do something regularly, then that becomes a priority for me. Now, Jesus' regular retreat to the Father in prayer is a priority. But prayer, not merely as an empty exercise, not some meritorious activity like somehow he's better off with God because he does it, but because it preserves and it also prompts unity within the Godhead. Remember Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? And what was Jesus praying? Father, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus went to the Father to to promote and to prosper the unity within the Godhead. I don't see any difference for us. We should be going to the Father. Someone put it well when they said, prayer is not merely communication with God. Prayer is not merely communion with God. Prayer is union with God. When we pray, we come into union with God. The psalmist said in Psalm 143, I think we have this one, but it says, Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, he says, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. 
I hear in those words a, a, a longing of the psalmist to be in union with God. I want, my, I want God's word, God's will, and God's way to be worked out in my life on a daily basis. I don't know about you. I don't, I'm not always cognizant of this reality. Okay, I'm not saying like I live all so super spiritually that I'm always aware that I want every moment of every day for God's word, God's will, and God's way to be worked out in my life. But if you would ask, that's what I want. And if that's what we want, then prayer should be a priority because that's how it happens. That's the psalmist. Let me hear your loving kindness. Let, how do I know what God's word, God's will, and His way is? Unless I'm listening to what God has to say. I'm reading His word. I'm hearing what God has to say to me, what He's doing in my life. In about a week, there's going to be a, like 15,000 people in southwest Iowa gathering to ride on Ragbri. Those people are regularly out there riding their bicycles in preparation, but some of them aren't, but most of them are out there regularly exercising, preparing, because it's a priority for them. I just wonder this morning, for us, is is prayer a priority? Well, I don't know. Do I engage in it regularly? You know, I haven't talked to anybody who's a believer who say, oh yeah, I'm just totally satisfied with my prayer life. But I would venture to guess at all of them and say, yeah, I need some work in that area. Well, that's okay. But we should pray regularly. Regular prayer proves that, hey, this thing is really important to me. It's a priority. If we say that prayer is a priority for us, great, keep doing it. And if it isn't a priority for us, why not? Jesus' practice of prayer proves that uh, his priority on it makes it a, a priority and should be done regularly. The second lesson that he teaches us is Jesus' pattern of prayer teaches us to pray humbly. You look at the next few verses in verses 2 through 4, what ended up happening was Jesus' modeling of prayer was what prompted his disciple to ask him about prayer. Teach us to pray. He introduces a, a pattern of prayer. Now, the substance of which... I'm going to say say this. I don't want you to get lost in it. The substance of which and the spirit of which is to be repeated. And folks, this prayer was intended to be something done corporately. But in many evangelical churches, we get away from it because it seems a little bit too, like, uh, high churchy. But all of the pronouns here are plural pronouns. Now, it's not something, not necessarily something that we exclude from our personal prayer life. I think we should be praying this, our Father, holy is your name. You know, your kingdom come. Forgive our sins. Give us our day, this day our daily bread. These are things that we should be praying. If not in the exact words, at least in the spirit of those words. And so we're going to march through this. And it's, it's not something that's supposed to be vain repetition. You know, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, I'm not saying if you pray that prayer that somehow you're, you know, bad. But it's not supposed to be vain repetition. It's serious. And so there, if we look at the text, it's, it's to be authentic and humble prayer. And two attitudes uh, 
conveyed by the phrases indicate that it's supposed to be done humbly. First of all, through these phrases that he says that we should pray. So I, I think it's appropriate for us to pray. Now, if you go to Matthew in the parallel passage, this is the pattern. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power forever and ever. Amen. First of all, we see in the text, we're supposed to grasp and acknowledge God's supremacy. In verse 2, there are three words or phrases that stress his supremacy. First of all, Father. He says, our Father. Or in the text here, it just says Father. In Matthew, it says our Father. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of endearment that acknowledges God's sovereign authority and his intimate relationship with us. We pray to our Father. Now, that's a problem because some of you don't have a good role model as a father or didn't have a good role model as a father, so that's problematic because that seems like, why would I want to talk to that person? Well, that's not who you're talking to. You're talking to your heavenly Father. And so he says it's, it's to respect and authority of his supremacy. Then he says, hallowed. Now, I don't know, the, I didn't check the ESV, probably maybe it says holy, but it means glorified, exalted, revered. That's who God is. He is our Father who is revered and glorified. Your name designates the whole person. Glorify your name. You know, we just sang that song, right? Glorify your name and all the earth. Glorify your name. What do you mean? Glorify you, your very person, the, who you are. Lord. That's who we're supposed to glorify. Exalt his name. Now, read the text. It says, Father, holy or hallowed be your name. It's not a prayer that somehow God would superimpose his significance and sovereignty on us, but it is a proclamation that reflects our attitude of recognizing that he is exalted. So when we say, Father, Holy is your name. We're not saying, Father, make your name holy. We're saying, Father, you are holy. You are exalted. You are worthy of our undeserved, unreserved devotion. And we acknowledge that. Isn't that where we should start? That's where Jesus started. With exalting God as who he is. He is our Father. to demonstrate and to reflect our reverence for who he is. I had a guy I knew in seminary, and I didn't know him really well, but he was from the south, from south of the Mason-Dixon line, if you want to put it that way. But he was from the south, and he had come up north to go to seminary, and he had been home for a vacation or a Christmas break or something, and I said, how you doing? Where you, you know, how was your time with your family? He said, well, you know, I've got a little, having a few problems because uh, my kids, my parents... Are, are, are thinking that we're just ruining these kids up here in the north because they're so disrespectful. Because they don't say, yes ma'am, and no ma'am, and yes sir, and no sir. Because you guys don't teach people, your kids, to say that. 
okay, there's some truth to that, you know. There's a little bit of respect that should be given. Well, our Father is a respectful term. Holy is your name. And then he says, your kingdom come. It's a request for the realization of the ultimate and final kingdom, that eternal and permanent and unshakable kingdom that we saw at the end of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12. That's the one he's praying for, the culmination of it, that God would do it. And for every true child, if you're a child of God because you believe in Jesus Christ and his death as a payment for your sin, the John said, Jesus said in John chapter 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave you the right to become the children of God. If you're a child of God because you believe and you're also a child of God proven because you obey, then guess what? You're already in the kingdom. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. We just saw in the first meeting this morning in Revelation chapter 1. We're in the kingdom. Or Revelation, uh, yeah, I think it was 1. We're in the kingdom. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of his beloved son. But what he's talking about here is not just that we're present in that kingdom, but that kingdom comes to its culmination. That's what he's praying for. God's rule is in our hearts if we're a child of God, but God will rule over all in his eternal kingdom, and that's what he's praying for. Proper prayer acknowledges the supremacy of God. The proper prayer also acknowledges our frailty. Look at the next three phrases, because they emphasize our frailty. We've seen God's sovereignty, now our frailty. And he says, give us our daily bread. And the verbs in this text are, are present tense verbs, which means they invoke continuous action. So the give is, keep giving us our daily bread. Not like, okay, you gave me the bread once, and now I'm good. No, keep giving us our daily bread. It's not a one-off prayer, but a continual acknowledgement of our dependence upon God for our daily sustenance. Now, I was thinking about that. We're in Urbandale, Iowa. Now, I know all of you aren't from Urbandale. You're from different towns, but central Iowa, this part. There's very few of us who really understand what it means ever in our life. Now, some of you can go back far enough when you remember this. What it means to be actually dependent upon God for your literal daily food. But we are. We really are. Dependent upon God for our daily bread, our daily breath, our daily sustenance. It's a gift from Him every time. So when you eat, eat for the glory of God. That's a Bible verse, you know. Whatever you do then, whether you eat or drink, and whatever you do, do all of the glory of God. I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Some of you are like, I'm down for that. Let's go eat for the glory of God. You know, I didn't say eat everything that you want, or as much of it as you want, but just eat for the glory of God. He, give us this day. It's a difficult concept for us to grasp. We're, we're, we're dependent on Him. Then He says, forgive us, our sins. Ah. It's an admission of our immediate and our ultimate separation from God. We're dependent upon Him for our forgiveness. Forgive us our sins. 
Only God can forgive sins. That's Mark chapter 2, verse 7. You know, the paralytic, and Jesus says, okay, you can get up and go. And they said, what do you mean you can give? Or he says, you can forgive, I'll forgive your sins. No, only God can forgive sins. That's Mark chapter 2, verse 7. Only God can forgive our sins. And when we put our faith or our trust in Jesus Christ, gratefully God sent his son. And he died on the cross so that his blood was shed as the payment for sin so that all who would believe in him would be forgiven. But then the reality is on the daily basis, we still our sins are forgiven, but we still break our fellowship with God through the sins that we commit every day. So we need to forgive, ask God, forgive me, Lord. I want to bring my relationship with you back into deeper fellowship. I never breathe. Never erase the relationship, but I break the fellowship. When you were a child, you disobeyed your parents. And when you disobeyed your parents, you didn't stop becoming their child. But you certainly broke the relationship. You broke, I mean, you broke fellowship with them. And that's the, I forgive us our sins, Lord. That's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he says, lead us not into temptation. And I want to say this so you hear it. God never leads us into temptation. James chapter 1 verse 13. God never leads us into temptation. So what is he talking about here? The phrase emphasizes our frailty, our weakness, our susceptibility to sin. We are prone to sin. And so he says we should pray that God in his infinite wisdom, power, and mercy would Give us grace and strength to resist sin. That, that's what we need. We need his help. Matthew, Matthew's version helps out. You know, forgive us our sins. You know, he says, uh, lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from evil. That's the, that's, you've got to get them both together there. Deliver me from the evil. You might say it this way. You might say, Father, I want and I need your Spirit's work and power in my life to deliver me from the evil that I'm being tempted with by the world, the flesh, and the devil. God, I need your help. That's, I think, the essence of what he's saying. Ask God to help deliver us from gossip, from a critical spirit. From our temptation to pornography, from our jealousy, from our greed, for our quest for power, for our selfishness. See, God, I that that kind of helps me because I'm like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. Lead me not into temptation. Lord, deliver me from my my sinful proneness to those sorts of sinful activities and give me grace to keep pressing on. This is Romans chapter 6. You can write it down, Romans, three through, Romans 6, 3 through 6. All right, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus or have, been buried, have been baptized into Jesus have been buried with him through baptism into death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too, now get this, might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall certainly be in the likeness of his resurrection. He says. And then he goes on to say that we should no longer be slaves of sin. 
That's, that's the, lead us not into temptation. And folks, don't any of us sit here and think that we are somehow piously above yielding to temptation because we are daily bombarded and we are daily susceptible. I just, I'm grieved because uh, there's, a, there's a church family that I know that is, is seriously hurting right now. Um, for over a year, their senior pastor was in a, adulterous an adulterous relationship with a, the wife of a member of their congregation I mean I know this church personally it's not like I, you know I read it in a book somewhere folks every one of us is possible you know the little statement except for the grace of God there I go yeah uh-huh so it's 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 scary but lead us not into temptation Daily we need God's power because we're frail and we mess up. So we, we seek God's pardon. We ask for forgiveness. We're prone to fail, so we ask for God's power. And Jesus' priority in prayer teaches us that we should pray regularly. Jesus' pattern of prayer teaches us to pray humbly. Jesus' perspective on prayer teaches us to pray persistently. His perspective on prayer teaches us to pray persistently. Verses 5 through 8 is interesting because he, persistence is enjoined here through two means. First an illustration and then the conclusion or application. So in verses 5 through 8 we see this illustration. And you know the story. I, I read it but it's like okay the guy shows up at midnight. There's a, there's a man who is, is totally freaked out because he has a friend that shows up at midnight. And hospitality was obligatory. As a, as, a, as a mark of, of your commitment. I mean, this was culturally, you had to do something with a friend who showed up on your doorstep. And this guy comes at midnight, and he, the man has no food left, so he goes to a neighbor. Well, it's midnight, folks, in the Middle East. They, they didn't stay up that late then. You know, they didn't have TV and texting and cell phones and, you know, Wi-Fi. They went to bed. And the chances are it's a one-room little shack with a raised bed and the animals sleeping on the floor and the family all in one bed, you know. Midnight. The guy's not getting up. You're my friend, I know, but look at buddy. I'm not waking up everybody in my family to give you a few loaves so you can be nice to your, na- your friend. But he w- so he will not get up because he's a friend, but then the text says in verse 8, yet because of his persistence, he will get up. Because of his persistence, he will get up. One morning, Marla and I were, it's a long time ago, we were awakened early in the morning by a friend who had been promising, yeah, I'm going to stop by sometime after work. I'm going to stop by sometime after work and we'll have breakfast. He worked the late shift at the local factory. Well, he stopped by this time. We weren't ready. And so my wife says, Steve, you got to go next door to the neighbors and, and get some eggs at this early hour. And so I went to the neighbors because of my passion to help my friend. I went to my neighbors and I importuned them. That's a fancy word for saying I made them uncomfortable. And uh, I, I, I got the eggs and we served my friend. It's the case of the squeaky wheel gets the grease, folks. Some of you don't know that expression. If you don't know that expression, you're too young for that expression, you can ask your parents. And if you're a parent and you don't know that expression, then ask somebody that has gray hair. They will know what I mean by the squeaky wheel gets the grease. 
okay? Or the squeaky closet door gets the grease. Or the squeaky cupboard door gets the grease. Because somebody is annoyed that it squeaks. Somebody don't care, but other people get annoyed. I want you to look at this little clip uh, from a, a movie that explains or gives the essence of the boldness and the persistence uh, that is, is related to this idea, this boldness and persistence that is meant by this text. You got it, Adam? Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you like this, but... My name is Don Dedman. I'm president of Marshall University. May I speak with you for a moment, please? What are you doing in Kansas City, Don? My town and my school, we're hurting. We want to play football, and we cannot do it without your help. Please. Guess who's going to change our diaper? In 1970, I'm sorry that you, I, I couldn't hear that even very well, so if you couldn't hear it, that's uh, my bad. But in 1970, uh, Marshall University in West Virginia lost 75 football players, some of their greatest uh, donors, and some of their co all five of their coaches in a horrible plane crash. And so what happened was that they tried to start a football team and they needed approval from the NCAA to allow them to recruit freshmen because at that time the NCAA would not allow freshmen to play varsity football in Division I football. And so this was the college president going to the NCAA headquarters from Virginia to Kansas City requesting personal permission and a special exemption for them to play. He was bold and persistent. That's the idea. The, e the NIV says boldness. The e New American Standard says persistence. It's bold persistence. And I, and I think that this is the text calling us to be boldly persistent. Friendship isn't enough to get the guy out of bed because he was persistent. The guy got up and went out of bed, uh, got out of bed. And I think about as a, as a father, I go almost daily to the Lord in prayer on behalf of my kids. And I pray, and I pray for their protection, and I pray for their biblical perspective. I pray and I ask God, I say, Lord, give my kids a hunger for the things of God. I pray that they would be passionate about their walk with God. I pray they'd be intentional in their pursuit of God. I pray that my kids would be morally pure, evangelistically bold. They would, they would be giving generously and serving willingly and living confidently for Jesus. Persistence. And, and this is the conclusion he gives. It, 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 persistence. 
He says, ask, in verse 9. This is the conclusion. Ask. (laughs) Seek, knock. Notice how ask, seek, knock, and then the the results, receive, find, open, are repeated twice in verses 9 and 10. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For the one who asks receives. The one who uh, seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Why is that true? Because God wants to emphasize his willingness to answer our prayers. It's a certain result of persistent prayer. And these, again, are present tense verbs. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. And God will answer and receive. And here's what I want to say. It's verses 9 and 10. God willfully and joyfully responds to the prayers of his people. Now, I'm going to get to this in a minute because I think some of you are, okay, well, is this a promise that he's going to give us everything we ask for? He willingly and joyfully gives persistence. Now, persistence communicates two things. It communicates the intent of the person praying. And I would summarize this like, God, you're my only hope. that's That's the perspective of the person praying. That's why you're persistent. I can't, I got no place else to go. But it doesn't just communicate the intent of the person. It communicates the magnitude of the request or how valuable, how important, how much that request matters. That's why God is interested in our request because when we pray it and we keep praying it, we prove that it matters that God answers. That it matters to me. That God would would answer my, my request. It's not arm twisting. God demonstrates, we demonstrate the value of what we're asking for. Matthew Henry put it this way, we prevail with men by importunity. We pester them to death, okay? Because they are displeased with it. They, we prevail because they're, they're, they're annoyed, okay? But with God, we prevail Because he is pleased with our persistence. God delights in and willingly answers our persistent prayers, not because he wants to alleviate our annoyance, but because he knows that the request matters to us. He's our father. He's our father. It matters to him. I wonder this morning, do you have, are the things that you want that matter to you that you keep praying to God about. Is there a loved one? There's a neighbor or there's a friend who you keep praying that this person, that God will open their eyes, that they'll turn from their sinful life and come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I wonder if there isn't a physical illness or ailment that plagues you that you say, you just keep praying, God, help me. God, please give me grace. Take this from me if you can or give me grace to go through it. Is there an addiction or a nagging sin that just keeps plaguing you or me that we just keep going to God and say, Lord, help. I need your help. Maybe there's a character trait that you want developed in yourself and myself that we want developed or we want it developed in our children or in someone else. And if you have children, of course you want God to work and develop things in there. But do we pray that God would do that in their life specifically? Maybe you want to get married. Start praying. You know, um, this is my little thing to single people. Pray out of your league. 
I mean, it's good. You know, I mean, God is able to do great things, you know, exceedingly abundant above we ask or think. So why not pray? I mean, hey, God, I prayed out of my league. He answered. So it's like just uh, you go way out of your comfort zone, way out of your league, and God will answer your prayer. You know, I think he will. Or you, you pray, you, maybe you're struggling, maybe you, you want to have children, but you can't. Maybe you want to have joy, but you don't. We pray. Keep on praying. Jesus wants us to be humble and continual in our prayers because God delights in answering them. Now, even if the answer takes a lot longer than we wanted, or it isn't the answer that we had expected or anticipated, God is still answering. It's not always, yeah, whatever you want, I'm going to give it to you. So it's just fine. No. Sometimes it's no. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to see you through this. I'm going to teach you more about me through your suffering than I am about satisfying your, your request. That's the way it goes sometimes. I know we have been praying in our family for one of our family members to come to know Christ for many, 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 many years, and they still don't know Jesus. We just got done praying for another person that we know that they would turn from a direction that they were moving, doing things that they were doing, and that they would see the light and make wise choices. And by God's grace, at least at this point, they, they, they did make that change. Uh, you know, but it's, <laughs> everything's temporary. You know, everything's subject to change, so we just keep praying. See, God wants us to pray humbly. And he wants us to pray persistently. The final lesson that we learn from Jesus is Jesus' promise of prayer teaches us to pray confidently. And this is verses 11 through 13. Confidence in prayer is reinforced, again, through an illustration and then a conclusion. It's amazing that almost the exact same wording is used in verse 11 that was used in verse 5. It's another mini parable to give us an insight to what Jesus' heart is, and the heart of our Heavenly Father, and His commitment to prayer. And you see in verse 11, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. Well, so he's making another parable here. Ask for a fish. What are you going to do? Give your kid a stone, a scorpion? You know, you're, no, you're not going to give something bad to your, your kids. That's the whole, it's natural, normal, though it's not guaranteed, that a father would give what is good to his kids. So what does he conclude? This is verse 13. Now, you know, then he uses an egg, and if you go to Matthew chapter 6, you can see he, he asks for bread, and he doesn't give him a stone, and there's different applications. So this pattern is not necessarily just rigid. I mean, he didn't give the same pattern exactly. The same pattern, but not the exact same words. So here we see in verse 13 that the conclusion of it. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, notice his assumption about mankind. What's his assumption about man? We're all evil. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give, and he says here, the Holy Spirit? So I put this with verses 9 and 10. God is, once we pray humbly because God wants to give us willingly and joyfully, we pray with this persistence and we pray in with the promise because God wants to give us good stuff he wants to give us willingly and he wants to give us graciously willingly is 9 and 10 graciously is 11 through 13 he wants to give us willingly he wants to give us graciously or generously however you want to say it Jesus will give us God will give us 
God's our Father. He doesn't want to give us worthless stuff, perverted stuff, demented stuff, damaged stuff. But he always gives what's good. Now, what is good isn't necessarily what we think is good. Okay? you got to understand that. It's good from his perspective. He gives us what is good. doesn't guarantee that we receive everything we are asking, but we always receive what's good. And here... The most important good thing we can give, the mo- get, and the most ultimate good thing we could receive is the Holy Spirit. And that's what he says he gives to those who ask. If you looked at the parallel passage, and uh, actually what's interesting, this is a parallel to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, did I ask you to get that one? Uh, Andrew, yeah, there it is. Adam, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Notice, what is good, and the supreme ultimate demonstration of what is good is the Spirit of God. His presence and His work and power in us, just as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 5, these is the working of the Spirit of God within us. Prior to, and even after the ascension of Christ, Prior to the ascension of Christ, there was no permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God within every believer. But after the ascension of Christ, everyone who puts their faith or the trust in Christ, the Spirit of God comes to permanently dwell. Before and after, the most important thing that could happen in a person's life was the Spirit of God present and working. And so, he says, that's what he gives, the ultimate good gift. Jesus' priority on prayer teaches us to pray regularly. Uh, Jesus' pattern in prayer teaches me and us to pray humbly. His perspective on prayer teaches us to pray persistently. Jesus' promise in prayer teaches us to pray confidently. So I don't know about you. Just you know, go home this week. Go home this afternoon and just spend a little bit of time uh, with, with this passage and percolate those things in your mind if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and just be grateful for the chance that you have to pray and ask God to work in your heart to be more about union with him in prayer if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior there'd be no reason for you to go through this workout until you see and your need to be in the Savior's hands until you see your need to trust in Christ and his death as the payment for your sin because remember he views all of us as evil And as evil, we are all dependent upon Him, and we're all dependent upon Him for our life, but also for our forgiveness. And it's only, the good news is that He made it possible for us to be forgiven through His Son. That's why we pray. And if we put our trust in Christ, then we'll be forgiven. And these prayers will become important to us because we'll want to be in union with the one who gives us leadership and direction through all of our lives and all of our hearts. I want to be connected to a a father who joyfully and generously and graciously will answer the prayers that I have as I come to him. And I would want that for you too. And you can have it if you put your trust in Christ. And as we come to break the bread and, and, and drink the cup, what we do is we realize that the only way we can have access to this God who gives joyfully and willingly and gives generously is through the work of his son Jesus who died on the cross. And so we take the bread and we take the cup as believers. We celebrate. We we contemplate what he did for us. And we're 
joyful and comforted by the fact that we as his children can know that he cares about and answers our, our prayers. And as an unbeliever, you're confronted with the reality that you either know Christ and you have access to forgiveness and his willful and joyful and generous gifts, or you don't, and we want you to. And so you can put your trust or your faith in him. Because as Donald Guthrie says in his commentary on this passage, he says, our prayers never go unheard nor unheeded. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we make time to eat this bread and drink this cup, that every person here who's trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior would take a few moments and just Say, Father, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. Forgive us our sins. Give us this day our daily bread. And lead us not into temptation. Whatever sin is in my life, I turn it over to you. And those of us are here that do not know Christ, I pray that we would, they would wave the white flag of surrender and turn their lives away from their sin and turn to trust in Christ and his death as a payment for their sins. And they would come and take this bread and this cup as an as a, a affirmation that they are now surrendered to a God who answers their prayers willingly and generously. We pray it in Jesus' name. the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness watch and pray, find in me thine all in all, cause Jesus paid it all. Stay.